and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swartz. This is our 499th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Shelley Puhak, author who's going to talk about her book, The Dark Queens, the bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Shelley. Thanks so much for having me. We are very excited to have you. Um, so our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin. We're really just trying to give our listeners a little background to the Tay's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on who Brunhild and Fredegund are? Certainly. They are two of the most powerful rival queens you've probably never heard of. And they battled for control of Western Europe during the early medieval period. And even though you may not know their names, you're probably already familiar with bits of their story through Richard Wagner's Ring Psycho Opera or Shakespeare's Macbeth or even the character Circe in Game of Thrones. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so where are they and, and why are they, why do they end up being rivals? Sure. So what's really interesting is that these two queens come onto the international stage during the rise of the Franks, a barbarian tribe who, after the Roman Empire has, quote unquote, fallen in the West and moved east, the Franks have stepped into the power vacuum in Europe. And the Franks have a really hyper-masculine culture, one that celebrates warriors and throwing axes. Uh, their kings wear their hair long. They're the long-haired kings. So they're not a people you might expect to be really open to female rule, which I think is really interesting because it completely challenges this idea that women wielding like political power is a recent innovation or that like women in leadership roles aren't traditional or the natural state of things. But... Still, Brunhild and Fredegund's rise to power is a little, uh, a little convoluted. One starts life as a princess on the Iberian Peninsula, what we would now call Spain. So she's a foreign princess, and she's raised as one might expect a princess to be, you know, educated, worldly, well-connected. Whereas Fredegund begins her life as a palace slave working in the kitchens who catches the eye of a king and ends up becoming his mistress and later his wife. And through this kind of absolutely ridiculously dramatic series of events, these two women will become sisters-in-law. And then after the death of their husbands, they will become long-term regents for their kingdoms. And these kingdoms will engage in a 40-year civil war. Okay, so give us a location. Where are these these kingdoms going to be? And and I know for our listeners, we tend to think of a modern European map, and that is certainly not what we're talking about here. So so give us some sense of, of where things are. And, and then if you can, just for a, a, a second or two, talk about the that convoluted relationship, because it certainly sounds like one of those... Um, Again, very dramatic opportunity here where a little bit of uh, family feud going on. Yes. Yeah, so the Franks, uh, they initially kind of start in what we would consider like Belgium and the Netherlands. But at this point in time, their territory encompasses all of modern day France, most of Germany, um, all of Switzerland, all of the low countries, you know, Belgium, the Netherlands, um, Luxembourg. 
and bits of modern day um, Italy. So they are the largest like European power at this point. Um, we've got, we have, you know, in Spain, we have the Visigoths and to the east, we have like this, these really fractured tribes that are kind of often under the rule of the Franks. So right now they're ruling, if you just want to think of the bulk of Western Europe, if you look at, at the map today. And we are talking about the family feud or how they come to power. Initially, the Franks don't believe in having the eldest son inherit everything. So every time a king dies, it gets split up between his sons, which isn't terribly efficient. So at this point in time, when these two women come onto the stage, there are four brothers um, who all have their individual kingdom in the territory of the Franks. And Runhild, who is the foreign princess, is married off to one of these kings, and his brother marries her sister. And this seems like this is going to be, you know, a recipe for peace in Europe. It does not work out that way because the king who's married Brunhild's sister ends up having her murdered and three days later marrying Fredegund, his former slave. So you can imagine Brunhild and Fredegund don't have a lot of reasons to be best friends right from the get-go. Right. <laughs> um, so it seems to me that... that these two individuals kind of work their their way through the the political world differently um does that affect their future relationship the fact that one's a princess and one's a, a former slave do they do they come at the concept of ruling from different concepts they certainly have different strengths Whereas Brunhild, given her background as a princess, is really well known as a diplomat who's able to bring a lot of different people to the table and negotiate emperors and popes. And also as an administrator, you know, being able to do things like get the big building projects done and repair the roads um, and improve trade and, and overhaul tax Asian codes. Whereas Fredegon, although she does some of those things as well, is really known for kind of working in the shadows. Um, She's a renowned assassin, and also she becomes a really celebrated uh, warrior queen who, you know, engages in, I guess, what we might term guerrilla warfare, early guerrilla warfare, in order to make use of having, like, a much smaller forces against the much larger forces of her rival, Brunhild. And she's able to triumph almost every time. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the 
discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Shelley Puhak, author, and we're talking about her book, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, as our medievalist of the group, start us off. So you talked about this a little bit uh, in the first segment, but can you expand a little bit about what's the uh, more common role of women during this time period, and especially noble women versus how these women um, manifest their power? Sure. I think the idea was that women would be a resource for their husbands who were who were ruling, although. As I dug deeper doing some of the background um, research for this and speaking to a lot of scholars, what really interested me is that there are a lot of women, we don't have nearly as much documentation, but were a lot more influential than I had initially assumed. Like, for example, Brunhild's mother is a major player, and she is essentially one of the, you know, working behind the scenes to secure her husband's throne. And after his death, she marries another king. And this is when she's, you know, well past the age of bearing children. So he's marrying her not for her ability to provide heirs, but for her, you know, political expertise. Um, So while it's not the most common during this time period, there are a lot of female regents and there are a lot of uh, female queens that are much more politically active than we're going to see when we get into like the mid medieval period or the later medieval period. Okay, Ed. Um, <clears throat> Shelley, um, is there any indication of what the the two sisters-in-law's relationship was while they were married to their husbands? Was that sort of a simmering feud that finally was allowed to erupt uh, when the kings died, or was this something that just kind of deteriorated over time? I think right from the get-go it was not... <laughs> is not a uh, pleasant relationship because uh, right away, like Brunhild and her husband, who's living at the time, launch a retaliatory war after Brunhild's sister is murdered. Um, and they're using that as kind of like the pretext to invade, you know, the neighboring the neighboring kingdom. And then at one point they have Fredegund and her husband, you know, surrounded and it looks like they're going to triumph at any moment. And Fredegund at this point pulls off her first that we know of daring assassination where she actually has two of her slaves disguised as defectors that come into uh, Brunhild and her husband's you know, camp and they appear to be unarmed but they actually have poisoned daggers which is a really you know at this point in time it's, it's not people are poisoned but typically through food or drink and so she pulls off this kind of daring middle of the day assassination of Brunhild's husband um, and that's how, you know, Brunhild will essentially come to power as regent. And then when Fredegund's husband falls, there's also the accusations, although in this case, you know, it's a little murkier, but that Brunhild might have been the one behind the assassination. So I would say that um, they certainly were rivals right from the start. Okay. Um, so that then leads me to, to my next, you know, to the next thought, which is what about heirs? Um, do do each of these ladies have heirs, and and what's going on once the husbands are out of the picture? Um, 
oftentimes you married fairly quickly um, in order to sort of put a, a man on the throne. It doesn't sound like that's essentially the way that either of them went. So, so how is the whole secession thing being dealt with? So they're both ruling as regents for their young sons, essentially. But what's really curious, for example, is like in Brunhild's case, once her son comes of age, she doesn't step down and she just co-rules with him. And then when he drops dead, very young, she becomes regent for her grandson. And then, you know, essentially we have like a really high mortality rate. I mean, some of it might just be luck where the men in this, you know, in this story are dropping dead left and right. And <laughs> Fredegon has a succession of of young baby boys that every time everyone thinks, whew, we have, you know, we have a couple boys, we've got an heir and a spare, we're good to go. Some epidemic will come through and take them both out. So for whatever reason, whether it's like a remarkable immune system or, you know, dumb luck, these two women are presenting themselves as like, you know, stability. They are the safe bet, whereas the males in their line keep keep dropping left and right. Okay, Brett. So is this a case where you have two people who are a little too similar and therefore (laughs) come into constant conflict, or is there an area in their personalities where we really can see a separation uh, between them? Unfortunately, we don't have, you know, as many of as much of their personal letters as I would like to have survived. They haven't. So, you know, some of this we have to kind of go on speculation based on how they behave as opposed to anything they they particularly say to one another. Although there seems to be they both seem to have had respect for one another because there's even a time when they will share a short lived alliance when they think that's in the best interest of their kingdoms. What that suggests to me um, and to a lot of other scholars is that, you know, politics is a blood sport during this time period. And while they're more than willing to get their hands dirty, it's nothing personal. This isn't necessarily like a cat fight or two personalities that are in conflict. This is the same way that two men would um, try to best one another on the political stage. And they are just doing what their male counterparts do, perhaps a little bit better. Ed. Um, knowing very little really about uh, the time period um, but were were these women also while they were at each other's throats um, were they also having to fend off uh, threats to their rule internally yes great question they absolutely were and there are multiple attempted palace coups on, on both sides and there are uh, they both have a brother-in-law, you know, who at various times tries to control or manipulate them. Um, it's, and, you know, and they both face political factions that clearly state they don't think a female is capable of ruling. And that seems to be their, you know, prime opposition to the queens. And so in each of their kingdoms, they're facing that. And then there are some questions on the um, international stage. On the other hand, they certainly are able to find plenty of allies. So there are nobles and popes and emperors that are more than willing to work with them, but they also have their hands full juggling the people who certainly have it in for them. So how how does a monarch 
and I guess this is the historical story, but how does a monarch know who they can trust or who they can't trust, and is the answer that they they don't know? (laughs) I don't know that they know, but what's really interesting is both women seem to have had, particularly in Brunhild's case where it's a little bit better documented, like a long-term support network. Like there's one um, particular duke whose name translates as wolf, like Duke Wolf. And he and Brunhild are allies like throughout his entire life. And she is loyal to him and he is loyal to her. Um, we also see that with Fredegund and a, and a few folks. So why there are plenty of betrayals left and right, there certainly are people who swear allegiance one day and then they've, you know, switched to the other team the next. They both seem to have had a knack for surrounding themselves with like a core group a few solid people that, as far as we you know, we know, seem to have proved to be very loyal for an extended period of time. Okay, so we've kind of brought this up on a couple of different occasions. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the major conflicts that they have with each other and how those turn out? You hinted earlier that Brunhild or um, that Fredrik Gung has a tendency uh, to to do very well. Um, so talk about those in, in a little more specifics. Are you talking about military conflict? Yeah. Um, so they're both fighting at one point to put essentially whoever their surviving heir will end up being on the throne of the entire Frankish Empire. So this is going to be the person that's going to rule all of, you know, what we think of as most, you know, Western Europe. Um, and at one point in time, Brunhild has consolidated kingdoms. So she has about two-thirds of the empire, whereas Fredegon only has a third. And so clearly Brunhild not only has more land, but she also has more troops. She's just drawing from a larger pool. Um, and, you know, Brunhild's strategy is to try to kind of encircle Brunhild. Brunhild is and encircle, sorry, Brunhild's strategy is to try to encircle and squeeze out Fredegund. And Fredegund is in the northwest, if you want to think of like northwestern France, like Normandy, that area, um, where she's got the channel, and then on the other side she's got the Anglo-Saxons, and the idea is to kind of surround her and squeeze her out. Um, so her strategy makes perfect sense. And then we have, you know, Fredegund, who's trying to go on the offense, and try to create some sort of inroads into Brunhild's um, territory. And that's why I think Fredegund's, you know, victories are even, I guess, just if you can kind of picture how she is outnumbered and encircled, and then the fact that she's able to kind of go right down the middle makes it all the more admirable. And one of Fredegund's major um, battle exploits, one that is preserved in Shakespeare's success, is the fact that she uses this battle strategy when she is completely outnumbered of having her army disguise themselves with branches and march at night so that one of the opposing army's sentries, you know, says, are those, are those woods? We have a little record of this, you know, interchange and he's told he must've been drinking and Fredegund's men are able to encircle Brunhild, you know, at first light, like why they're still sleeping and slaughter them and essentially carry the day. But we have a lot of instances where Fredegon is able to, you know, she's able to choose the battlefield. She makes use a lot of times of, uh, like, these natural features, like caves and ridges, 
And some of the spots that she chose for battle significantly also end up being spots where like major battles of World War One were conducted. So these certain ridges or valleys that are of great strategic importance were the exact same spots where she was um, deploying her troops back then. Brett. Well, and I'd like to dig a little deeper there. So obviously there's a, a great strategic mind uh, at work there as a military leader, but do either of these women also actively participate uh, in the fighting themselves and, and get their hands dirty, so to speak? Fredegan leads troops, so we know that she does that. And in one instance, um, she has her young son with her, who, depending on what account you read, is she's either carrying him or he's riding in the saddle in front of her. So she absolutely partakes in the battle. With Brunhild, we know of instances, we have documented instances, where she arms herself and she rides out in between armies. But I, we don't have as much documentation of her maybe leading the charge uh, time and time again, the way Fredegum was known to. Okay. Ed? Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the um, political subunits of the territories that these queens ruled over? I mean, they're obviously over a large geographic area, but within that, um, you know, I'm a little prince or a little king somewhere in a little nation-state type place. Um, what's my life like when they get to fighting over me? <laughs> um, in terms of your day-to-day -day or in terms of your larger objectives? Either one. I'm a, I'm a complete, I'm a blank here, so whatever you tell me is more than I know. Well, we have to keep in mind that the, there's still this Roman network of, like, fast ships and kind of um, messenger relay routes and roads. So we, you know, most of the major cities have essentially operated as, you know, wagon wheels with these roads riding out. And so a lot of times I know I was always surprised to say, how did they get there so quickly? And, you know, you'd be able to look back and see that they're using a combination of, of barges and boats and um and, you know, fast horses and carriages. And life is surprisingly, say, much more cosmopolitan. Trade was, the fact that, for example, we have Chinese silks and we have a lot of things that are coming in from Asia, right? And, like, the average person might not have access to these on a daily basis, but we know from the anthropological like evidence that, the average person, for example, this time period is better nourished and taller than they will be during the Industrial Revolution. Like, unless, you know, when you're in a period of a natural disaster, a flood, uh, epidemic, things are not good. But most of the time you have a great variety in your diet. Um, there's a lot of trade with North Africa and Asia, as I mentioned. Uh, so things aren't quite as isolated as one might, might think. We have people that travel quite far. Uh, for the time period, you know, it's not unheard of for someone to, you know, for example, start in what we might think of as southeastern France today and have traveled back and forth to, you know, modern day Spain a few times. It certainly wasn't the norm for the lowest classes, but it wasn't unheard of either. All right. Well, so we need to, to, uh, 
put sort of a bow on this. So talk to us about the ends of each of these ladies' lives and, and how this thing uh, has sorted itself out when, uh, when these two remarkable women uh, finally leave the stage. Well, when the dust clears, we'll say one has died quietly in her sleep, if a little too conveniently, and the other has been executed in just the most gruesome, horrific fashion. Some people say it might be the most horrific execution of a queen in history that we know of. And the son of one of the queens sits on the throne of a united Frankish empire. So um, in my book, I describe, you know, what happens to which queen, but it certainly is just as their backgrounds are quite different, their ends are completely different, too. All right. Uh, well, you know, I can't I can't let you sort of get away with that exactly. Can you tell us at least which one, you know, <laughs> dies? And, and I love the way you put that, you know, peacefully, if somewhat too conveniently, <laughs> which makes you think that maybe. So so who's who here? How, how does this turn out? I'll go by the book, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred again, after, you know, conducting a, uh, all these assassinations and living quite a violent life as the one who has a relatively quiet end, whereas Brunhild finds herself executed in a very horrific fashion. And this is in her late 60s, early 70s, because there's some question about her her, uh, birth date. So she's executed as, you know, a great-grandmother in this time period. Wow. All right. Well, it's our custom to let the guest have the last word on the show. So, Shelley, why do you think... Brunhild and Fredegung are relevant in today's world? Well, I think that the backlash to the reigns is going to impact Europe for centuries, and it's really going to set the world back in many ways. So they both are going to stand up to the church at a time when the church is consolidating power and deciding whether it wants to be more cosmopolitan or more fundamentalist. Um, and in order to betray Brunhild and have her executed, the king who takes power has to make concessions to his nobles. So he signs what is regarded as an early Magna Carta. And that basically, up until this time, you know, people have had this dream that maybe Rome would be reconstituted. And this decisively ends that dream and gets us to the fragmented nation states that will be the hallmark of medieval Europe. All right. I'm going to bring in our history buffs here to to sort of give their two cents. Uh, Brett, I'll let you go first. Why do you think these two ladies are important to know? Uh, I think it is a great example of women being fully human. So in the same way that uh, misogyny um, downplays their abilities, it can also downplay their cruelty you know we've all seen the post oh if women were in charge we'd have no wars well these two seem to suggest that we're all still just people and we will find things to fight about violently and no gender is inherently peaceful and nurturing um and we're all just people okay ed um well, I'm intrigued with this notion that um, the church seems to always show up somewhere <laughs> along the way 
<laughs> and, you know, in that time period, things usually don't improve. Right, right. They don't seem to help. Is that yeah, what you're and saying? I, and I can, without going into any detail, um, I can relate that to today's times where religion kind of doesn't know its place. Right, right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 499th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Shelley Puhak, author, who talked to us about her book, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. Our history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KLA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hutza Pulanala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.